And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Have you ever had this experience where you're looking for something, whether it be in the closet or the garage, and you kind of have a a concept uh, of what it looks like. You think it's in a brown square box. It's really in a yellow oblong box. So you do all your searching, and in your searching, you, you realize later you actually looked right at it and maybe moved it out of the way looking for your square brown box when it wasn't in the square brown box. Well, most Jews, what it is is you had a wrong mental picture, right, of what you were hunting. Most Jews in Jesus' day had the wrong mental picture of the Messiah. They were expecting a different kind of Savior. They thought that he would be a mighty political deliverer who would lead Israel to military victory over Rome. That's what they were all looking for. They were not looking for a lowly Savior uh, riding on the foal of a donkey. Are you kidding me? They couldn't conceive of a suffering Savior who offered offered himself as a sacrifice for sins. And so tragically, they missed the coming of their king. By and large, the Jews missed the coming of their king. Now, many people today still miss Jesus because of wrong expectations. They're looking for a savior like Aladdin's genie, who will simply grant their every wish. But we know that's a fairy tale. That doesn't happen. They want a savior who will instantly solve their deepest problems, yet those problems are still there. Or they expect a church where everybody always loves each other all the time, but a church member treated them wrongly, and so they dropped out uh, in bitter disappointment. Well, in order to joyously welcome Jesus as our King, we need to understand properly who He is. That's where our joy will come from, and understanding who He is. Our text in Zechariah is one of the great messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And it teaches us that because Jesus Christ is king and he is coming to reign, this is what Zechariah says, we who are subject to him should rejoice greatly. So the question is, are you rejoicing greatly? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come this morning seeking the help of your Holy Spirit to uh, help us unwrap this package to be able to, or this passage and be able to uh, uh, just uh, wrap our minds around it to give us understanding, give us wisdom, give us discernment, those eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the hearts to understand this truth, Father, that we can look forward to the day when Jesus comes again. And it's in His precious name we pray. Amen. Well, the news that a king is coming is not necessarily a cause for great joy. Uh, The first part of the chapter there in Zechariah 9, it predicts the coming of Alexander the Great. Do you remember Alexander the Great? Uh, He basically conquered the whole known world in eight years. Now, he died at 32 years old, and and he had had many flaws, but he was a great military leader. So to hear that he was coming your way, that wouldn't be cause for great joy. That would send you running for the hills, right? It's also difficult to accept the news of a coming king because there's a sense in which all of us want to rule our own lives. Now this is getting to the heart of the matter. We're all interested in ourselves, aren't we? 
So we can accept governmental interference to a limited degree as long as it doesn't get too close. But if a king starts trying to control every aspect of our lives, how we do business, how we relate to others, including our own families, and even how we speak and how we think, we resist the very thought. Now, on the way to Fort Walton uh, yesterday afternoon, Debbie and I were looking around for some radio, and I hit one that said religion, and it was talk. I never found out the lady's name that was talking or the man that she was talking with. But a court, a court case has just come about in um, Canada. And they're saying, if this happens in Canada, how long is it going to be before it happens here? Uh, this girl, through her uh, middle school and high school, found literature on gender issues. And all of a sudden, when she was 12, decided that she wanted to be a boy. So she followed the literature and did this and did this, went to the doctor, all of this without the dad's approval. By the time he found out about it, she, was, she kept it hidden from him. She had already become a he. And now, when it was revealed, she wanted to be called a he. Dad wouldn't do it. The court is ready to put him in jail if he does not call his daughter a he. I see a bunch of heads out there doing this. I mean, I wanted to reach right through the radio and grab that judge up and say, what are you doing? So that, time of, that type of ruler, we, we, we would naturally, right, raise our guns and say, not for me, buddy. But you know what? This is the... This is exactly the type of king that Jesus is. But he's not going to ask you to do dumb things like that. He's a king who wants to and does rule your life, but he is a benevolent, benevolent ruler who loves you. Jesus is king. He is rightly king of all people and all aspects of their lives. Now, regarding this particular king, Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. The rest of verses 9 and 10 there in Zechariah in, in describe this king, and they explain why his coming gives great cause for joy. If we understand who this king is and what he is what his coming will mean to the whole earth, we as well will rejoice greatly at the news of his coming. So first major point is, Jesus Christ is king. The phrase tra translated, your king is coming to you, can also be translated, your king is coming for you. In other words, for your benefit. Now to receive the benefits that this king is offering, we need to recognize our own need. Israel was under the domination of powerful foreign rulers. They were incapable of freeing themselves. But this king had the power to deliver them, and he had their best interests at heart. Now spiritually, we today must admit that we are under the domination of sin, and it will destroy us, and we are not able to free ourselves. Then... When we realize it's about themselves, we will welcome the promised king and the benefits that he offers. 
You see, He comes for you. That's what Zechariah said. Behold, your King is coming for you. But who is He? This, this is central. We have to know who we're talking about. And there's several things that our text tells us. Number one, Jesus Christ is the King of authority. Now, authority is kind of bound up with the idea of kings, isn't it? At least in, ancient, in the ancient world. Today, some monarch, monarchs, such as Queen Elizabeth uh, of England, they, they have almost no authority. Uh, they function as official state dignitaries. Uh, their wishes may have some weight with those who run the government, but in reality, they don't have a lot of authority. But think about this. Think about Jesus. Even in His first coming, when He's coming as the humble, suffering servant, He possessed a quiet but total authority over all people and events. The Jewish leaders hated Him because He threatened their authority. But you know what? They couldn't lay a hand on, on him because his time had not yet come. Jesus was in charge. On Palm Sunday, this is the week before the resurrection, to fulfill this prophecy, Jesus staged a public demonstration to show the Jewish people and their leaders uh, that, that he is the Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah they were expecting. Remember, they had that wrong mental picture. The Sanhedrin had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should inform them so that, that he could be arrested. Now Jesus' action, bold action really, of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to the cries of Hosanna, that led to his arrest, uh, to his crucifixion, at the very moment that the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in Jerusalem. And that all was in fulfillment of Scripture. The uniform picture of all four Gospels is that Jesus was firmly in charge of all of these events. Jesus was not a helpless victim. No one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. Jesus was clearly in charge of the events surrounding his death, including the triumphal entry, the betrayal by Judas, and the death plots of the Jewish leaders. None of it took, it by, took him by surprise. Why do you think he was in such anguish in Gethsemane? He knew what was coming. Well, he is the king of authority who controls all things according to his purpose, even the events of his death. Now, before we move on, we need to personalize this just a little bit. This is something for you to think about. Is Jesus the king, your king? Scripturally, there's no debating the issue. Jesus is king. Is he your king? Does he rule in your heart and in your life? Well, number two, Jesus Christ is uh, also the king of justice. Now, Zechariah says that the, Israel's king is just. Some translate the word, as the ESV did, as righteous, and it can be either, but the context really leans towards justice. It's a king who administers justice in his kingdom. He's not corrupt like so many world rulers are. Jesus Christ will be... Um, just in the administration of his kingdom because he's righteous in his person. He can do no other. He's not out to take advantage of his subjects for personal gain. He has their best interests at heart. Well, number three, Jesus Christ is the king of salvation. Zechariah says that he has salvation. The meaning is either that Jesus was endowed or clothed with salvation or that he was saved through some ordeal. We know what the ordeal is, right? The crucifixion. And he was saved through his resurrection. It can also mean that he shows himself 
to be the Savior. Now, the difference doesn't affect the meaning. Jesus came to bring salvation to His people. Now, for the Jews, the salvation that the Messiah would bring, it had national political overtones. For centuries, the Jews had been threatened by hostile nations that wanted to either annihilate them or enslave them. So when God promised them a deliverer, they thought of the one who would reign on David's throne and and bring salvation from all of our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Yet at the same time, salvation for the Jew also had a personal dimension. It related to the individual's deliverance from God's judgment on his sins. Do you remember Zacharias? This is the father of John the Baptist. He prophesied that John would go before the Lord to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. That's Luke 177. Do you remember what the angel told Joseph? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, Zechariah 9.10 refers to Messiah's second coming, when he will fulfill that national sense of salvation by ruling over the nations. Yes, there's coming a time when Jesus will rule this world. But the New Testament makes clear, in conjunction with several Old Testament prophecies, that in his first coming 2,000 years ago, the Messiah would bring special salvation by offering himself as the sacrifice, to satisfy God's justice against sinners. If God dismissed our sin without the penalty being imposed, He would not be just. God has declared that the penalty for sin is death. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. Through Jesus' death as the perfect substitute, He paid the penalty that we deserved. And that allows God to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There are two wrong notions that will keep many people out of, out of heaven, and, and they usually go together. First, people wrongly believe that God is just too loving to send decent moral people to hell. Right? God is love. He just can't send decent people to hell. That kind of thinking grossly underestimates the serious nature of sin. It also compromises God's justice in favor of His love. So you're setting aside His justice and, and, and holding on to His love. But when you do that, you also compromise His holiness. You know, Scripture never says that God is love, love, love. But what do the seraphim say, both in Revelation and Isaiah 6? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So, sin has to be paid for. The second wrong notion is that most of us are good enough to qualify for heaven as we are. We all have our faults, to be sure. We know that. We understand that. But we're not like murderers or terrorists or child molesters. So we figure that the scales will kind of tip our way when we stand before God because we're sincere and we meant well. Well, many Jews made that same mistake. They thought that since they were descendants of Abraham, since they observed the ritual law as prescribed by Moses, and since they were obviously better than the Gentiles, that God would accept them. He would not judge them. But their thinking is flawed here. 
You see, heaven requires perfect righteousness. Perfect. And that's where Christ and the cross come in. On the cross, the perfect Son of God offered Himself as a substitute for sinners. He came to give His life a ransom for many. Now someday you're going to stand before God either clothed in your own righteousness, and He's taught, what is righteousness, that's another word for good works. Right? These are the good things I've got done, God. What do you think of this? Does, any know, does anybody know what Isaiah says our good works are? Our righteousness in the eyes of God? Filthy rags. We have no righteousness. So, if you stand before God in your own righteousness, you're going to be condemned. And it's either going to be that, or you're going to stand in the righteousness of Christ. Right? First Corinthians, first Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Clarence United Methodist, many, many years ago, uh, had on their sign, as I was driving by, I noticed it and I just smiled. You've you got to know a little bit about the Bible to understand it, but it says, the, the uh, garments of righteousness will never go out of style. And it's talking about the righteousness of Christ. Our garments of righteousness are too thin. They're see-through. <laughs> They're nothing. You cannot offer your own righteousness to God, only the righteousness of Christ. So Jesus came the first time bringing salvation, but He's coming a second time as judge of all the earth. If you've trusted Him as your personal Savior in the here and now, then you can rejoice at the thought of Him coming as the judge because He has already borne your sin. Well, number four, Jesus Christ is the king of humility. Now, king of humility, that sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? it two opposites together. Perhaps we should say that he is the humble king. In contrast to the proud Alexander on his war horse, Jesus came as a servant, not only on a donkey, but on the foal of a donkey. After Solomon's time, Kings and warriors, they rode horses, not donkeys. The donkey was a, a lowly animal. It was used for peaceable pur purposes by those who were of no rank or of no position. By riding the foal of a donkey, Jesus was showing himself to be king in the fulfillment of our passage from Zechariah this morning, but not the exalted political king that the people expected. Again, they had the wrong mental picture. In His first coming, Jesus was the suffering Messiah who offered salvation and peace with God through His very own death. Now, the Hebrew word for humble, it also includes the meaning of a righteous man afflicted by evil men. Many commentators say that the word pictures the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Jesus willingly laid aside His rights he took on the form of a servant. This is what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Charles Spurgeon pointed out that no false Messiah has ever copied Jesus in this taking the low place of a servant. But our, our Savior Himself commanded us to follow Him in this regard. Do you remember the night of His betrayal? They're in the upper room. Uh, he's taken the towel and the basin and he's washed the disciples' feet. Do you remember what he said? I gave you an example that you should do 
also, that you also should do as I did to you. There are numerous commands in Scripture uh, that we are not to think too highly of ourselves. In fact, we, are, we more need to think lowly of ourselves. So we should learn humility from our Savior. So He's the King of authority, the King of justice, the King of salvation, and the King of humility. Lastly, He's the King of creation. This is evident from the fact that He rode into Jerusalem on an unbroken colt. Now, I'm not a horse expert, but I know enough not to climb on an an unbroken colt. I'd probably end up with a broken back. Jesus riding on this colt shows His miraculous power over creation that He spoke into existence, right, by the word of His power. Now, there is a spiritual significance in the fact that the colt was unbroken. In the Old Testament, when an animal was to be used for sacred sacred purposes... It had to be one which had not already been used for common purposes. So you couldn't go from the common and be used for the holy, for the sacred. Since this animal was now to be used to carry the Messiah, that's a holy calling, it had to be an animal that had never been ridden by man. So only the Lord of creation could do what Jesus did here. And if Jesus is the creator, then certainly we should obey him. This colt, just think about this colt for a second, just like Balaam's donkey. Do you remember Balaam's donkey? He sees the angel. And so he stops and Balaam gets and beats him with a stick and what have you. And finally, after the third time, God gives the donkey the ability to speak. And he says, why are you beating me? (laughs) He says, have I ever done anything against you all these years? And he goes, no. And he says, don't you see the angel? And God opened Balaam's eyes to see the angel of the Lord standing in front of him. And he melts like butter. Uh, But he obeyed. (laughs) He knew what was right and wrong. Think about this colt. Jesus got on him. He didn't buck him off. This was the Messiah in control. Think about this. Jesus came to his own. John puts it this way. They received him not. I would like to say they bucked him right off. They didn't know they had the Messiah in their midst. Well, if Jesus is the king of authority, of justice, of salvation, of humility, of creation, then it kind of follows that number two, our other second main point, Jesus Christ is coming to reign. To reign. This is what Zacharias tells us. Verse 9 predicts Jesus' first coming in lowliness to offer himself as a substitute for sinners. Verse 10, that predicts his second coming in power and glory to reign over all the earth. It says that Jesus will remove the weapons of war both from Israel and from all of Israel's enemies. It says that he will speak peace to the nation and it implies more than just mere words. It's the power of his person and presence will affect peace on this earth. Zechariah then quotes from Psalm 72, 8 about the Messiah who's reigning or going to reign from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's just poetic language for worldwide dominion. Jesus Christ predicted his own return to earth in power and in glory. 
The book of Revelation shows Jesus coming again. This time, not on the, the foal of a donkey, but on a white horse, a, a charger of war. And he's coming to slay his enemies. And he's coming as the King of kings and Lord of lords. At that time, every person will meet Jesus. If you yield to him now, you will joyfully meet him as Savior. If you reject him now, you'll meet him as judge. When, according to Revelation, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So as believers, what should our response be to the fact that Jesus the King is coming again and He's coming to reign? What should our response? Well, it should be to rejoice and to shout in triumph. The double commands to rejoice greatly and to shout in triumph, they emphasize exuberant joy. The commands are addressed to the daughters of Zion and the daughters of Jerusalem, meaning those who are in covenant relationship with God. If Jesus is your king, then lift up your head and rejoice, for your redemption draws near. Perhaps you wonder, how can I rejoice greatly when there are so many overwhelming problems in the world, so many problems in my own life? Yeah, Jesus' is coming will be nice, but it's so far off. How can I rejoice now? Well, the answer is the same for us as it was for Israel back then. We rejoice by faith in, faith in our coming King. You see, it would still be four long centuries from Zechariah's prophecy before Messiah rode into Jerusalem on the foal of that donkey. And still, the vast majority of Jews missed their Messiah. Well, it's been 20 long centuries since then. And here we are today. And the scoffers, they will taunt, where is the promise of His coming? Peter talks about that in his second epistle. The bottom line is, we either believe the Word of God or we don't. When He came the first time, Jesus fulfilled not only this prophecy from Zechariah, but over 300 other prophecies. So it's not unreasonable at all to assume that the prophecies about His second coming will come, liter will come true literally as well. Meantime, we must live by faith. Faith in the hope of His coming will fill us with great joy even in the midst of difficult trials. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again just for the challenge of your word uh, to know that, yes, we are to have joyful hearts. We are to shout in triumph because our King is coming. Father, we long for the day to be uh, holy in your presence. Father, apart from sin, uh, that day will come uh, surely and it will come soon enough. Give us the faith uh, to trust you until then and to have that joy that looks forward to that day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said last week, um, we're, we're going to be using, you know, from now on, kind of the three circles. Some of you may have seen them in your seat. I think there's a few over here on our little table, the little booklets. And it's just a way to be able to share the good news with others. And it begins with God's design. He created us. He created the world. He made it perfect. When he was all done, he looked at it and he saw that everything was good. And then he man, made man and, and he said, oh, everything is very good. But something happened. Sin happened. Boy, you went right by me. 
sin happened <laughs> and it resulted in brokenness. And that's the brokenness that we see around us all over the place. We try to fix that brokenness within us by a variety of things. Maybe it's by getting more likes on our Instagram. Uh, maybe it's by becoming class president. Maybe it's because it's by trying to become president of the United States. Who knows? You try to fix yourself in a variety of ways, but it doesn't work. This is why Jesus came. He came down to this earth. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for sin. He was buried, and then he rose again on the third day. That is the essence of the gospel. And it is believing that message that Paul says is what saves us. And what happens is we turn from our wickedness, you know, that reflects more of our brokenness. We turn from that, and we believe in Jesus Christ. The result of that is that we recover a little bit because having come to Christ, we will become new creatures. We'll be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Then we pursue God and we pursue His design like we should have been doing from the beginning. And then our next little thing is, as believers, we go and we repeat this process and help others understand what's going on. So the point of this is, listen, if you're sitting out there and you have not recognized Jesus as King that He is, you need to. Like I said, if you, if you know Him today, you're going to rejoice when He comes again because you know that He has borne your sin. He's coming as your King. But if you don't know Him, and you leave this world not knowing God through His Son, Jesus Christ, when Jesus comes again, He's going to be coming as your judge. Then you will be standing in front of God in your own righteousness. And it won't work. You have to have the righteousness of Christ. So I encourage you today, if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you, you come to Him, right? You turn from your ways. You believe in Christ and what He has done, what He has already accomplished on the cross. And God will save you. If you're a believer, how many of you have things going on in your lives right now that you just soon not deal with? If your hand ain't going up, you're probably lying. Or you didn't hear the question clearly. We all have stuff, right? It's in the midst of those. Some of them, now, understanding that's on scale. Uh, Miss Sarah Howell shared something with Debbie and I before the service that's serious. Very serious. Oh, did we mention Corey and Sarah and Andrew? I don't think we did. The reason Debbie's here is uh, Andrew, last night, was up all night coughing and wheezing, and he had a fever. Well, he's already had COVID, so it's something else. So they, they had him on a nebulizer. It helped a little bit. They've taken him uptown. Uh, he's, at, he's, he's at urgent care right now. Uh, so that, that's kind of a, a serious thing when you're, when you're you know, two-year-old child can't breathe, right? So what I'm saying is our problems, they're on a scale, and we understand that. But we all have problems. In the midst of those problems, as believers, our job is to reflect a grateful heart because we know that the King is coming. And we need to shout in triumph. You understand our life here is 60, 80, 100 years, whatever it is, is nothing compared to eternity. Paul says that we're not to fix our minds on the things that are seen because the things that are seen are temporal or temporary. Right? He says, set your mind on the things that are unseen for the things that are unseen are eternal. So I hope today's message would encourage you to, to just recognize, yes, the King is coming and it is going to be a glorious day. Regardless of what's going on in your here and now and around you, Jesus is coming again and when He does, it's going to be a glorious day. We can rejoice in that.
Well, if, if you would like to join our church, you can just come talk to me. We're going to have just, a, just one uh, verse of an invitation give you a chance to respond. If God is speaking to you, you come forward and share it with me. And if you'd like to join our church, you come. We'll do a little paperwork and see about getting you going with us here at First Baptist. You guys stand. And as the Lord leads, you come. got before us uh, Deke and uh, Lee uh, Fisher. Now you're, you're smiling at Deke because his name is Derek and Derek Fisher. How many know Derek Fisher, the NBA basketball player? When he said his name to me, I just kind of went Dring! and it stuck. But it, it, as according to, it, it is Lee, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. According to Lee, uh, she's the only one that calls him Derek. Everybody <laughs> else calls him Deke. So I'm introducing him as Deke and he's sitting here laughing. I don't know. What do you want, Derek or Deke? Doesn't matter. You just call. All right. Uh, they are coming. Where are you guys coming from? I've done forgot now. Uh, actually, it's Monroeville, Pennsylvania. It's about 12 miles east of. Pittsburgh. That's right. She. They're up. That's that's where Ruby is from, and I was mentioning that to them. So they they've moved down here, and they want to join our fellowship. I've talked to them, and they were supposed to be here last week, but something happened, and they weren't able to make it. So they're coming this week to join. And if you just join with me in recognizing them and welcoming them in, into our fellowship, just raise your hand and say Amen. Amen. All right, now, we'll do this afterwards since we got communion. This is throwing a monkey wrench. You guys go ahead and have a seat back, and we'll call you all up at the very end, and we'll let folks come and say it. You guys can go ahead and be seated. If you will get your... Um, ooh, we're out of ones and almost twos. Does anybody not have um, stuff? Oh, Caitlin, get her, get her one. Okay. If, you, if you'll go ahead and, and there are... You know, if you haven't done this, there are two little things that lift up. The first one is a very thin cellophane, and that exposes the wafer. Now, this I found out, I didn't know this, but somebody told me, and it's true. The wafer is not designed to be chewed. You can chew it, but it's going to be like chewing plastic. <laughs> it melts on your tongue. Put it in between your tongue and, your, and the top of your mouth, and it will melt in about 10 seconds, okay? That's, that's the way it's designed. And then under that, of course, we have the... Um, the juice. Well, we come today to do this. This week we are not having a Monday Thursday. Monday Thursday is um, the Thursday before the crucifixion, the day before the crucifixion. Um, and, and sometimes we have a Monday, thir sun Monday Thursday service and we do communion there. We're not doing it, so we're doing it today. Let me give you just a quick overview of what has happened. Jesus comes in on Sunday, right? Uh, after the entry, he clears the temple. And then for the next four days, Monday through Thursday, he actually um, spends time in the temple teaching. All right, now, Thursday afternoon, getting close to Passover. He says, I desire to, 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 to uh, have Passover, observe Passover one more time with you. And he tells them to go and prepare the room, and they do. So, um, if you'll remember, Passover uh, took place, the original Passover took, took place in Egypt 
when God killed the firstborn of all in the land, including the firstborn of the animals. The Israelites were instructed to kill a one-year-old lamb without blemish. The blood of that lamb was to be spread on the doorposts and the lintel of their homes. So when God came through that night to kill the firstborn, if he saw the blood on the doorposts and the lintel, he would pass over that house. Thus the name Passover. Now, um, do you remember what John the Baptist called Jesus? John one twenty nine. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At the end of that Passover meal, Jesus instituted what we now call the Lord's Supper. And He said He was instituting a new covenant in His blood. And in doing so, He was rendering the old covenant obsolete. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Now, I'm going to be reading from Mark's account, from the Gospel of Mark today. Uh, I'm going to begin reading this as Mark chapter 14, verse 22. And here's what we read. As they were eating, let me say a couple things first. The Lord's Supper is for believers. It's for those that know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And he also tells us, Paul does in uh, 1, Corinthians 2, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, to be prepared to examine yourself. Kathy, I hate to do this, but can you just play one verse of anything? One, one verse of anything. I just want you to take a minute and get your, right heart with, get your heart right with God. Don't partake of the Lord's Supper with sin boiling within you. You know you've got something you've got to get right before God. Do that now. And if you don't, if you're clean before God, praise God. Just take the time, pray for others, pray for yourself. Let's just take a minute to be quiet before the Lord. Kathy. Mark 14, 22, we read, As they were eating, he, Jesus, took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Let's pray. Father, we come before you to say thank you for the goodness of your design, the goodness of your plan to give Jesus on behalf of sinful man. Jesus, we thank you for giving your body on that cross. Uh, Father, what a blessing, uh, what love you displayed. We are grateful and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You, you may partake. Then in verse 23, And he took a cup, 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Peter says that your blood is precious. Father, it is uh, the blood of an unblemished, an unspotted lamb. So we give you praise and glory for that. Thank you for staying on that cross, for shedding your blood for our sins. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may partake. Well, we know that they stayed up in the upper room for a while longer, according to John's account. We have John 14, 15, 16, and 17, and that includes the high priestly prayer of Jesus for His disciples and for us. And, uh, but then, when that all rounded up, uh, a couple different places it says they sang a hymn. That was probably a psalm, a particular type of psalm. Uh, we don't know that psalm. And so we're not going to try to do that, but it's been our kind of tradition here. We're going to close with, Blessed Be the Tide. Now, when we sing this, uh, that will end the service, but, but I want uh, Deacon Lee to come on back up, and then you can come by and welcome them and say, thanks for being a part of us. Okay, so we're going to do that. Uh, you go ahead and lead them. Blessed Be the Tide. Please stand. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.